Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursdays. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members to sit down and discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. If you are an ASHP member, you will also have the opportunity to earn continuing education for listening to this episode. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast for more information. My name is Gretchen Lindsay, and our guests today are Tanya Yaritsky and Norman Pillsbury. In this episode, we will be discussing opioid stewardship. Welcome, everyone. Tanya, if you don't mind beginning for us and answering the question, what is opioid stewardship? Well, thanks so much, Gretchen. Starting with what opioid stewardship is in general, just the word stewardship means to take care of something. So in this case, we're talking about the safe use of opioids. There's really like some back and forth really in the pain community about whether it should be called pain stewardship or opioid stewardship um, or something else. And honestly, uh, for a while, back when I first started doing this, now almost four years ago, I was in that pain stewardship camp. And since then, I have really shifted more towards the opioid world because uh, opioids are used for more than just pain, right? And so a lot of the work we do is for caring for patients with opiate use disorder, or as I'll refer to it from now on, OUD. Um, and we also use opiates for other things like shortness of breath too. So there's other indications of just calling it pain kind of limits the utility. And then also um, we're using other medications and trying to steward our opioids effectively. So appropriately stewarding those medications being used as analgesics or as opiate sparing agents, that's another way we're you know, applying stewardship. So at the end of the day, while it's all related, it really is the opioid at the center of the bubble. Opioid stewardship itself was born out of antibiotic stewardship concepts. And that includes things like addressing patient safety and public health concerns and needs. Opioid stewardship does require a proficiency in managing medications appropriately, also with collaborating with key stakeholders and protecting human health. There is a programmatic structure that's really important to prevent work from being done in silos, which is something we've seen where without some type of formal structure, a lot of people are working on things here and there, but we could totally have more synergy and have a more coordinated effort by having a structure to the work we're doing. And so that's what opioid stewardship does give us. And then taking that a step further, when we compare opioid and antimicrobial stewardship, the key element that's required in an antimicrobial program is that of a trained pharmacist. So, you know, you you really can't have an effective medication management program without a medication expert. So there is a need with an opiate stewardship, and it should really be considered a requirement to have pharmacists involved in order to have a successful program, just given the complexity of managing such high-risk medications. Thanks, Tanya. Norman, if you don't mind, would you tell us what is driving the creation of these programs and health systems? Sure. Uh, Opioid overuse, misuse, abuse, and related harms has significantly skyrocketed in the past decade. Tens of thousands of Americans die each year due to these agents. The U.S. Commission on Combating Synthetic Opioid Trafficking reports that more than 100,000 people died of drug overdoses in the 12 months preceding June of 2021. This represents a 30% increase over the previous year. The American Medical Association confirms that at least 40 states have reported increases in opioid fatalities 
since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. More than $1 trillion is spent on this public health crisis annually. Establishing an opioid stewardship program is necessary for health systems to provide the best care for patients. It is increasingly seen as a best practice due to the economic, physical, and psychological strain of the pandemic. In addition, shortages of injectable opioids, including morphine, hydromorphone, fentanyl, and remifentanil are increasingly common, interfering with patient care and increasing healthcare costs. Shortages of injectable opioids can be particularly challenging due to the range of uses in various healthcare settings, including emergency response, ambulatory surgery, and hospital care. Injectable opioids are used for acute, acute done chronic or chronic pain that cannot be controlled by other pain management options. Some injectable opioids are used for sedation or anesthesia. Intermittent shortages of specific opioids may require institutions to convert temporarily to a more available product. Not all injectable opioids are interchangeable for all indications. Improper conversion between morphine and hydromorphone caused two deaths during a similar shortage in 2010. Opioid stewardship programs can mitigate these concerns. Thanks, Norman. Uh, if you don't mind um, telling us, Tanya, who, when a hospital would like to implement such a program, who are the critical stakeholders of such a program? It's a really great question. Critical stakeholders for an opioid stewardship program are going to vary. So it's going to depend on different sites, right? There's not always going to be the same people that you have to have involved, but there's probably core groups of people you want to have involved. The services that are offered at a site and the leadership at each entity is not the same. So um, that's going to, you know, kind of shift it a little bit. And we know that there's these certain people, um, specific disciplines, as I mentioned earlier, uh, pharmacy is definitely one of them. Um, it's just a no-brainer, right? So we are the ultimate stewards of medications and especially high-risk ones such as opioids do require that expert level of detail. Nursing and nursing representation is another big group of, of people you want to make sure you're including. Um, I work on the inpatient setting and, you know, nurses are so critical and key and, and getting things done and understanding how things work on, you know, at the bedside is really critical. So um, they work with patients and families all day long, you know, day in, day out, and they really know kind of what um, is feasible. So including nursing is really key. Physicians, um, you know, advanced practice providers, providers in general, um, you may want to think about some specific ones depending on where you work. Of course, there's service line um, focused type of work you're going to be doing. So you probably want some uh, individuals from service line representation as well. Anesthesia should be on board um, because they're really, really close to these medications. And there's a lot of stewarding that needs to go on in you know, the surgical world. And they work very closely alongside surgeons to provide sur surgical care. You really can't get much done without executive leadership being at the table. They're not going to be doing your nitty gritty work day in and day out, but they are going to be huge supporters of the work. Our executive sponsorship has provided us with project support. They've given us uh, opportunity to get, you know, grant funding, our donations, um, advocacy on behalf of our projects, getting our projects out there for the entire health system to see, 
and, and really importantly, offering us guidance on navigating those complex channels in the health system. So the leadership at executive level is really important. And then also, you know, at the individual service line, like I mentioned before, you're going to want to have project experts from those service lines, leadership from those service lines. Um, and oftentimes leadership from different service lines provides multiple department representation. And that is really crucial because you, you're trying to hit, you know, different key groups. Um, along those lines, project management is so important. They help us leverage resources, prioritize, stay organized, um, and, and get our work done effectively. Something that you cannot really ignore is the need for information services. Information services uh, are integral for anything that you're trying to lift in the electronic health record. And so having representation at the table is going to streamline those requests that you send to them. And when it gets to them, they're going to have been involved in the plan. They're going to know what's going on. And they're going, you're going to be bringing forward a plan that's actually able to and feasible to be implemented. Um, and also then appropriately monitored. So they will be able to help hook you up with the right data that you need to look at what's the impact of the work you're doing. Uh, a couple other key people to think about would be legal representation as the um, very complex landscape we're working with within the opioid territory. So having legal representation or at least someone you can you know, call up quickly and make sure what you're doing is um, in line with laws uh, or local or federal laws, depending on what you're working on. Um, generally, local laws apply. And then probably one of the most important people, although I'm saying them last, uh, maybe should have been first, is the patient. Um, and so having patient representation, if there is a patient and family advisory group that you can get, you know, engage someone from that group, um, that helps you to know what you're doing, how it's impacting people, you know, what what you're intending to do, is it really what the outcome is that you're, you're looking for? How can you make it better? Um, what do the patients need? And, and on that level. So that's a really good individual. And then lastly, just don't exclude anybody. So uh, if there are people who come forward and say they want to do the work or they're interested or passionate about it, then include them because we, we need a lot of workforces to get the work done and everybody's really busy. So pulling on those people who have the passions will help you move your work forward. And Norman, if a, a pharmacy wants to be involved in this, do you mind telling us what the pharmacist's role is in opioid stewardship? Pharmacists contribute to opioid stewardship in a variety of ways. The parts of the pharmacist's role in these efforts may include oversight of dosing, facilitation of deprescribing, conducting medication reviews, optimizing therapy through pain assessment, use of prescription drug monitoring databases to track prescribing practices and patient behaviors, education of healthcare professionals, patient coaching, targeted monitoring of treatment outcomes, identification of patients at risk, detection of drug diversion, conducting clinical utilization review, medication reconciliation during transitions of care, and participation in take-back programs. Thanks, Norman. Appreciate that. Um, Tanya, when uh, hospital owns to implement this. Can you talk about how success of such a program is measured? Success of an OB stewardship program is a little bit tricky. And I, again, I think that depends on the, the model for the program and kind of there's probably different ways to do it. So there's um, 
some hard, fast data points you can track, of course, there's always you know data that we can track. Um, and then there are, in my experience, and more recently has become really a little more obvious to me, some softer changes um, that maybe are a little more nuanced and kind of shift the balance that over time being in this position for a few years now, I, I see the culture change within the organization um, and then even in the community. And I think it's it's pretty interesting. So um, we will talk a little bit here about just the kind of tracking and the measuring. And then I'll talk a little bit more about what I mean by soft data or soft or softer changes. So um, we do also need to kind of use caution in what we're tracking and how we're measuring it and making sure that we're not yielding unintended consequences because we all are well intended, but sometimes, you know, we don't, things don't go the way we expect them to. So that's a big part of the tracking. Um, so your measurement's really going to depend a lot on who's involved and how and where a program is set up. Um, you know, there are large academic settings like where I work, where there's lots of resources for analytics. And so you may be easier to tap into them. Although in my experience, I find that there's a lot of competing needs. And so it's not always as easy to tap into analytics resources as one might like. Um, regardless, in smaller or more rural settings, you may not have those resources at all. And so uh, depending on where you are, it may be easier to get data or not. Um, so regardless, the, you know, the measures that we are looking for are outlined in the literature. And these are the things we can use to track success. I'm not going to list out, you know, tons of measures for you, but I can refer you to things like the American Hospital Association's uh, Stem the Tide document that provides a menu of metrics um, of which mu we must include. Things that um, they outline are things like addressing addressing the problem. Are we supported with up-to-date and evidence-based guidelines? So creating guidelines, policies, procedures. Um, so, you know, looking at, at your, your kind of what you have now and what you need. Uh, showing success uh, for or a need for improvement with what we have, our goals, uh, keeping kind of longitudinal tracking of whatever our goals are. Um, and again, is this all evidence-based uh, to positively influence patient outcomes? So looking at patient outcomes uh, with whatever interventions we are doing, identifying different variation between departments, uh, departments, units, or prescribers, because that can be kind of like a, a way to identify a need or an opportunity to intervene. And then are all of our measures um, balanced to ensure that we're not causing new problems in the system? Some high global kind of goals or things to think about when you're thinking about your metrics. Um, back in 2019, Risk and colleagues did publish on some inpatient metrics that we should consider monitoring. Um, and there are numerous publications that apply kind of across all settings, but um, probably a little bit more in the ambulatory care focus. So things like the um, nationally, National Quality Forum Playbook, or um, as previously mentioned, the AHA Stem the Tide Guidelines. So I can refer you to some of those places to get a good start on, on looking at what might be some metrics. You can uh, definitely think about this as form as low effort, high impact. So whatever you're going to embark on, um, you kind of want to go after the low hanging fruit, right? Small successes can really translate into big wins. And um, what seems small might actually be a lot bigger than you think, too. I've learned that uh, a number of times now. So for newer programs, you might think of like things like uh, just kind of getting in compliance with what the legal uh, requirements are. So making sure you're checking, you have a way to document checking the PDMP and that electronic medical prescribing is um, integrated into your electronic health record. For maybe a little bit more established programs, you may be looking at, you know, a little bit things more like um, guideline-based care. You might work on creating guidelines. Even that for a newer program is a good thing. So creating some prescribing guidelines, 
um, tracking morphine equivalents for post-op prescribing. Just kind of getting a sense of what the problems might be uh, is a good a good way to kind of get started and think about where to go from there. You might define in a case of post-op prescribing where you've created guidelines that maybe successful implementation um, is, you know, an increase in guideline concordant prescribing. Your goal is not going to be 100%. Not every patient is going to fit that guideline. But you're going to look just for trends, trends kind of in the right direction. But if you have a more advanced program, maybe you are going to set some thresholds at which you intervene, uh, If you have, especially if you have resources to do that. And then another way to look at this is uh, kind of through the OUD lens. So you can do things like tracking naloxone prescribing for patients at risk of accidental overdose and also prescribed opioids. You can um, think about this, especially if you really, you know, if you want to target it, think about our highest risk group, which are those people with OUD, and ensure that they have Narcan or naloxone when leaving um, and that they they are um, sent with that if they leave the hospital. Uh, You can track things like prescribing of medications for opiate use disorder in this population and target interventions to improve MOUD prescribing, which are medications for opiate use disorder. Um, because these are indeed some of our most vulnerable patients. Perhaps like the, one of the hardest thing to measure is to think about, um, which we've tried now we're embarking on this in our program a little bit, is thinking about those chronic um, patients prescribed opioids chronically or in more long term. And, you know, maybe looking at some of the unintended consequences of uh, being tapered or tapering and trying to track kind of the, the chronic population beyond just, you know, if they have a urine drug screen um, collected or if they have an informed consent or pain agreement. Um, so there's there's lots of kind of like, again, softer things to think about. And so, um, you know, focusing on those that low-hanging fruit, again, is going to be important, but um, looking kind of at your, your environment and doing an environmental scans, uh, most recently, I attended a health fair where we were distributing naloxone and we um, were distributing it amongst some other things. And I had done the same health fair three years ago. Um, and the uptake by the community and by the employees of, you know, yeah, I really do think I need this naloxone around or in my home, or I know there's a need for this in the community was not as significant, not nearly as significant three years ago as it is now. And so the culture is shifting. The culture within our employees, within our community is shifting towards kind of understanding maybe a little bit more of a need around doing these things and and being safe with a medication that has risks. And it really is the medication, right, that's risky, not the patient. And so as long as we frame it that way, um, it tends to be much better received. And that is a way to destigmatize the whole situation overall. Um, so you can do lots of different things, you know, to, to kind of gauge things more day to day, more month to month, and then you can kind of zoom out and see how things are going um, overall by doing like a little bit more of a, you know, environmental type scan. So lots of different things to consider and do, but just doing something, getting started, looking at your, you know, what your just basic needs are is a good place to start. Thank you very much, Norman and Tanya. Um, that's all the time we have today. We'd like to thank our guests for a great topic and discussion. For our ASHP members, you can find additional resources and earn free continuing education by visiting elearning.ashp.org backslash podcast. Please note that credit for this podcast expires two years after the date this podcast is published. Thank you for listening thank you very to much ASHP for attending Official, today. the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. 
If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHB Official.